Philip Schlein was born in New York City in the fall of 1945. His family were devout Jews, and they moved soon thereafter to California. And there, Philip's dad changed the family name because of the anti-Semitism that he faced in the post-World War II years. He changed it to Sloan, and Philip started going by his initials, P.F. When young P.F. Sloan was 13 years old, he took, his father took him to a music store in West Hollywood to buy him a guitar because he wanted to learn to play. He's standing there in that West Hollywood music store, 13 years of age, and who should walk in the door but the king of rock and roll himself, Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley saw the transaction that was being made, and he stopped long enough to teach young P.F. how to play Love Me Tender on that new guitar. And P.F. was ruined. Instead of becoming a pharmacist like his father, he decided he would become a musician. Three years later, at the age of 16, Sloan had a job as a session guitarist in California. He helped create the California surf music of the early 60s, playing for Jan and Dean, the Beach Boys. By the time he was 18, he was playing and writing for the Mamas and the Papas, collaborating on their hit, California Dreaming. And while he was still living at home with his folks, he wrote the lyrics for Secret Agent Man and that guitar riff that is so famous now by Johnny Rivers. He was a made man, 19 years old, cranking out gold records, living in Hollywood, the world at his feet, and then everything changed. Within a year, he would be out of the music business completely, working a beer route and telemarketing jobs to pay the bills. He would be admitted into a mental health treatment facility, and he would not record or play again until 2006. What caused the crash? Drugs, alcoholism, burnout? No. He wrote a song. He wrote the song you just heard, Eva Destruction. It became a number one hit in 1965 for Barry McGuire. That's Barry on the front of the bike, PF on the back. And it ruined McGuire and Sloan's careers. It was the Vietnam era. Public opinion had not yet turned against the war. And here comes this young California Jew, this revolutionary with this anti-American diatribe. No one would touch him. Here are P.F. Sloan's words regarding the song. Eve of Destruction was written in the early morning hours. I had the most outstanding experience hearing this inner voice, and I had begun to argue and wrestle with it, and wrestle with a number of issues that were unbearable for me at the time. In my youthful zeal, I didn't realize that this would be taken as an attack on the system. The media headlined the song as everything that was wrong with the youth culture. It was a hack song just to make money. This 19-year-old writer is a communist dupe, they said. This song will frighten little children, they said. I was banned from national television, and any positive press that I received was unpatriotic. In a year, I would be driven out of the music business altogether. And here is a quote from Sloan that I found the most interesting. I wrote Eva Destruction as a love song, as a prayer to God, looking for an answer. It is a conversation with heaven about this whole crazy world. Humanity is in an endless dance around this razor's edge. And when I sing the song now, I hear God saying, 
Don't believe we're on the eve of destruction. I'm not going to allow that to happen. And then other times when I sing it, I hear God say that He's just going to leave it all to us. I don't want to live in a world where hatred and hypocrisy overrule love and beauty. If you believe we are on the eve of destruction, then we must find a way to prevent it. If you don't believe, then sit back and watch it being destroyed by our greed, our selfishness, and our anger. End of quote. A song written more than 50 years ago, so dark and apocalyptic, sounds as contemporary today as it did then. The themes are all the same. Violence, war, fear, twisting of the truth, hate. And the fuel behind it all is this unrestrained anger. Bulging, carotid, red-faced, clenched fist, rage. There are a lot of similarities culturally in this country between the 1960s and today for sure. But the furious indignation is probably the greatest common denominator. And it's not simply individual anger. It's collective. Whole tribes, whole cities, whole political movements, whole church denominations, whole broadcasting systems are making a living on being aggrieved. There's an old movie from the 1970s called Network. Anybody remember it? (laughs) This is Howard Beale, the main character. He's a broadcast anchor. You should go see this on YouTube. He's a broadcast anchor anchor who comes in and he's just losing his mind. And in the middle of his nightly news program, he says this, I don't have to tell you that things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust, shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter, punks are running wild in the street, and there's nowhere, no one anywhere who seems to know what to do, and there's no end to it. The air is unfit to breathe, our food is unfit to eat, and we sit watching our TVs while some newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, and if that's the way it's supposed to be. We all know things are bad, worse than bad, they're crazy. So we don't go out anymore. We sit in our house and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller and all we say is please at least leave us alone. Leave me, let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel belted radials. And I won't say anything. Just leave me alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I want you to riot. I don't want you to write your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the streets. All I know is that first you've got to get mad. So I want you to get up now. I want all of you, not now, to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window and open it and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. How was that? Was that a pretty good? Yeah. 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, 
2,000 teens today, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And a constant of the human condition is rage, anger. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. Here are some words from 3,000 years ago. As if we needed more proof that this has been a humanity-long issue. It's Proverbs 16, 21. Better to be patient than powerful. Better to have self-control than to conquer a city. I bring this subject up today because in our meditation series on Tuesday nights, as we focus on meditation and mindfulness and getting peace of mind, that requires that you face your own personal anger. It's easy to see how angry other people are. (laughs) Other people. But look deep within yourself. Turn your scrutinizing eye inward. What makes you so angry? Where does it come from? How long does it last? What effect is it having on you, your health, on your loved ones, on those around you? What do you do with your anger? What do you do with all of this burning resentment? Reflecting on the wisdom of the proverb, have you learned patience? Or do you prefer the explosive power and the rush of adrenaline that comes with rage? Have you learned self-control or do you opt for conquest and the annihilation of your enemies? Better to have self-control than to conquer a city. Now think about that. How much power does it take to conquer a city? There are more than enough military veterans in this room to understand such a challenge. Fortifications, bunkers, pillboxes, snipers, anti-aircraft fire, minefields. It requires a superb strategist to overcome such things and often requires gallons of human blood and an untold number of lives. It takes crushing, hellacious, terrifying power to overcome a well-protected, well-armed resistance. And old wise Solomon, who built more than one of these fortified cities in his day, says, it takes more power to control yourself and to control your anger than it does to conquer a city. Here is something to consider about conquering a city. Most cities that fall to a siege, next slide if you would, when they finally fall, there's not much left. This is Aleppo, Syria. They are annihilated. All that is left is wreckage. And that's exactly what uncontrolled, unchecked, unbridled anger does. It destroys everything in its path. You might win. You might come out on top if you let your rage off the leash. But what will you have won in the end? A pile of rubble? Because everything has been burned down? It might be worth hearing an old southern proverb, not as articulate as Solomon's, but just as true. A bulldog, go dog, a bulldog 
can whip a skunk any day. But they will both stink in the end. Did you ever hear that growing up? Now you have. And when my uncle would tell me, it's corollary, a dog can kill any hog in the pen, but he'll have to get down in the mud to do it. And the hog likes the mud. You understand, right? Self-control is protection. It keeps you from lashing out at those you want to hurt. Yes, but it protects you from you. You say things when you're angry. I don't know if you know this. That you wouldn't say under normal conditions. Did you know that? You do things when you're angry. That you would never normally do. You post things online. When you are angry. That you would not do. When you were calm. And yes you might get them. Whoever MR. You might have your say. You might come out on top, but it's going to stink. You're going to have mud all over you, even if you win. You understand? Who ends up tipping over the eve of destruction is not just the person who is the object of your anger, it is you. Because whether we realize this or not, it bears repeating, friends, we all live in the same house. And if you set fire to your neighbor's bed, you're going to burn the whole place down. That's what's going to happen. So, how do we control it? How do we contain this burning anger? I'll give it to you in acronym form, FIRE. F-I-R-E. F. You have to face your anger. And this is easier said than done because most people deny that they're angry when they really are. Have you ever said this around your house? Well, I'm not really angry, I'm just hurt. Watch out. Right? Come on, come on. Well, it didn't make me mad, I'm just disappointed. Oh, mm. clapping over here on that one. That must be a line in somebody's house. The truth is, most of us, when we are angry, we don't know what to do with it because we've been told that anger is a sin, and it's not. Being angry is not sin. It is not a stigma. Anger is natural. Anger is useful. Anger has a purpose. And on some occasions, anger is the only appropriate response. But what do we do with it when it's sitting there burning and burning and burning, and we have to face it and admit it. I'm angry. I can't ignore it anymore. I'm naming it. I'm accepting it. I'm acknowledging it. I'm going to face it. Begin right there. I investigate your anger. This is even harder than facing it. I am so mad at him. <laughs> well, wait a minute. Is it him? Or is it something about what he does that pushes your buttons? Why do you get so angry watching certain news programs? Do you really know? 
Why do you get steaming when a particular subject or particular person comes up? Set aside the personality. Go deeper than that. Don't just look at the circumstances. Examine further. For example, when you get cut off in traffic and you get angry, does that ever happen to you? (laughs) Liars. Next Sunday's sermon will be about lying and honesty. When you get angry in a fit of road rage, why do you do that? I bet it's not because of your overwhelming concern for public safety. It may be something much deeper, like I wish some of these tourists would go home. You see, that's the source of it. You follow me, right? Or you're standing in line at the coffee shop and and the line isn't moving. Or Walmart, I always pick the wrong line. I try to stay out of Walmart just as a public disclosure. Anyway, you're in the coffee shop, the line isn't moving, and finally you get up there to your coffee and you take out your frustration on the barista that's waiting for you. Why do you do that? Because you're obsessed with high-quality customer service? No! Because most of us feel so entitled that we take offense when someone else is wasting our precious time. You see, look a little deeper. Don't just say he or she makes me angry. Face your anger, investigate your anger in the R. Take responsibility for your anger because it belongs to you. She makes me so mad. No, 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 no. The only people that can make you mad. Now, if you haven't heard anything else, write this down. The only people that can make you mad are the people you have given your permission to to make you angry. Right? Are you still with me? That's who makes us angry. Because it's our response. Not what somebody else necessarily is doing. Can I give you one more southern proverb? My grandmother would say to me, I'm going to get your goat. Has anyone ever had that said to them? A few of you. What in the world does that mean? Well, I'm going to tell you. My grandmother would say, I'm going to get your goat, and it usually meant she was going to unsettle me in a significant way. I learned later, and I don't know if my grandmother knew this, but it's an old farming term. If you had a plow horse that was high-spirited, you would put a goat in the barn stall with him in the evenings to keep him company and to keep him calm. They would do this later, the turn of the century, with racehorses that were high-spirited. You'd get a little lamb or you'd get a little goat, maybe a little burrow, and you'd put it in there with the racehorse, this high-spirited, angry horse, and it would keep him calm. So if you had money on another horse, You'd sneak over there at night and get the goat. I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. You don't believe me, but I'm telling you the truth. You get the goat. They show up the next morning to race the horse, and he's all agitated and out of control. When you face your anger and you investigate it, and then you take responsibility for it, you know what you're doing? Hiding the goat. 
protect the goat. If there are people that get your goat, learn that. Know that. See what buttons they are pushing. Take responsibility on yourself, not what other people are doing. God, please, in this country and in this world, if people would just take responsibility for their own anger and quit being aggrieved at everyone else who disagrees with them. We will burn the whole house down if we don't find some ways to take responsibility. And the E, the last one, finally, you can empty yourself of your anger. You can't start there. If you decide you're going to empty yourself of your anger first and not go through those other steps, you know what you do? You just bury it. All you've done is put a delayed switch on the fuse. And one day it's all going to come steaming out. Don't you do that at home? You've had a bad day. You're angry about stuff. Your wife comes in the door. She says, I didn't get the mail today, did you? And you say, why am I always the one that has to get the mail? Nobody's ever done that. You know what that is? That's anger from somewhere else. That's laying there and all this waiting is for somebody to kick the fuel can over. And that's usually the person closest to you. You can't let all that go if you work through these other steps. And then, your response can be one without hatred, but helpfulness. Without snark or sarcasm, but humility. You can lead with your heart and you can keep your head. Put the fire of your anger out. I told this story the other night. I'm done. It's about an ancient Islamic legend, a man named Lao Shabazz who lived in the Middle Ages. And Lao Shabazz was thought to have these magical powers and he was traveling through the Afghan desert cold one night with a friend. And they get to a place where they're going to camp and they set up their little pyre of wood to stay warm and then both realize neither of them have anything to start the fire with. And Lao Shabazz's friend says to him, well, you're a magical person. Why don't you fly on down to hell and get us some coals and bring them on back here so we'll have a place to be warm? Shabazz thinks about that a minute and says, yeah, I'll do that. So he flies off. Shabazz means bird. So he transforms into the bird and flies away. Comes back a couple hours later, empty-handed. His friend's nearly frozen. Where is the fire? Why did you come back empty-handed? And Lao Shabazz says this. There is no fire in hell. Everyone who goes there must bring their own fire from this world. I don't know any more about all that fire and brimstone of the afterlife. But I know this. That we produce more than enough hell here on earth with irresponsible anger and weaponized hate. And when it is allowed to burn without containment, it pushes us to the very eve of destruction. Only by putting out that fire can we avoid the destruction of our own making. May we pray for that and act accordingly. From the book of Common Prayer, join me. O God, the Father of all, whose Son commanded us to love all, lead us from prejudice to truth. Deliver us from hatred, cruelty, and revenge. 
And in your good time, enable us all to stand reconciled before you and with others. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord.